Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Marmite Tasting. No, no, it's medical device sales. And yes, Marmite Taster. That is a job. A guy retired from it four years ago, having tasted the equivalent of 264 million jars. That stuff's nasty. It's like Vegemite, but not as bad, I guess. Um, I believe that position is still unfilled. Where was I? With ideas, stories, and interviews to take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of mobile bearing disc replacement in times of S1 butt screws. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. So today, today is going to be awesome. LinkedIn legend and internationally renowned spine surgeon from Rush University Medical Center, Dr. Kern Singh, is going to be with us. If you look up the word innovation in Webster's, his picture is right there, which is perfect because we are continuing our series on character, trying to cover ground not typically plowed in sales training. And our word for today is just that, the character trait of being an innovator. So what's an innovator? An innovator is someone who brings new value to the world around them. It can be a new product, an improved way of getting something done. According to Ideascale, it can be in small or large forms, but in general, it relates to introducing some form of significant positive change. So let's build a foundation on this by stating to be truly an innovator, you have to be able to visualize that change is even possible. I mean, this is huge. We've talked about the tripod of medical device, the selling function, the relationship function, and the technical side of this world. The truly successful look at these three and see the possibility of positive change in small or large form in all of them, in spite of what's going on, in spite of what's going on. Where we get stuck as device reps, and where I oftentimes get stuck, is when I think, or we think, that change is not possible. The relationships are as they are. The surgeon that hates your company will never change. Your ability to sell is what it is. So to have the critical character trait of innovator bringing new value to these three legs of the medical device table, we have to strike the two letters N-O out of innovation. Otherwise, we can easily be the ants in Bugs Life, an awesome movie, by the way. So let's set this scene up so when I play the audio, you can visualize it. There's a line of ants, and they're carrying what they foraged to the anthill. When out of nowhere, a leaf lazily falls out of the sky, blocking their path. So let's pick it up right there. <gasps> oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. I'm lost! Where's the line? It just went away. What do I do? We'll be stuck here forever. Do not panic. Do not panic. We are trained professionals. Now stay calm. We are going around the leaf. Around the leaf? I I don't think we can do that. Oh, nonsense. This is nothing compared to the twig of 93. That's it. That's it. Good. You're doing great. There you go. There you go. Watch my eyes. Don't look away. And here's the line again. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Soil. <laughs> Good job, everybody. 
Isn't that so us sometimes? The life equivalent of a leaf falls in front of us and it stops us dead in our tracks and we need another ant to talk us around it. So what's your leaf? What's your no you're contending with and how can we bring new value to these situations as innovators? Sometimes getting from the no to the yes is not some new out-of-the-box thinking innovation. It's just the methodical application of the right thing over time. I was with a rep many years ago that struggled getting back to see the surgeon in a particular office to look at x-rays, get the surgery schedule, etc. So one day we happened to be together and we walked in and the staff at both windows waved and smiled at me and the electric door swung open for us to go back. He looked at me and he said, how did you do that? I didn't have an answer for him at first, but realized all I had done was the very thing that he never did. If there was no patience behind me, I would take a few minutes to ask them how things were going, how was their family doing, did they have a good weekend, and all these things. Not for the purposes of getting back there, just a small investment in their lives. And over the course of a few months, turned a no into the yes, as they appreciated being appreciated and not just a means to an end. So innovation, that search for a new way to address an old issue, is many times uh, found by just doing the old thing you know to do, because you listen to the show, and doing it faithfully. So let's talk about the new way for a minute. Sometimes I think situations demand a new way, and oftentimes I find that that is just not doing things the old way. That innovation is just not doing the same old thing that you've done over and over again. I love what Charles Kettering said. If you have always done it that way, it's probably wrong. So looking for a new way of doing something and not the way we've always done it. So if you're not calling on somebody right now, well, maybe you should start calling on them. Or if you're approaching somebody the same way and you've hit a roadblock, well, then start approaching them a different way. If a product's not working, then what could you show them otherwise? Just try to turn the channel, so to speak, and just do something different that you haven't been doing. And this is where we sometimes need a guide ant to talk it out with somebody else that's been around longer or maybe knows that person or any number of ways just to find out what the best strategy is uh, before we before we launch that ship. And you know, a lot of these things really depend on where your customer is. If you've got a zero customer, they don't like your company, they don't like you, you know, any number of things. It's not to get them from zero to a hundred. The goal is just to get them from a zero to a one, right? Look at what you have and, and how can you get them from just a zero to a one where they know your name and maybe try to reinvent yourself or reinvent your company. Maybe there's an issue there. So how do you how do you creatively start that conversation again with a customer that's at a zero? A customer that's at a 50, they use half of your stuff, but they use somebody else's. What could you be doing creatively to get them to a 75 or get them to a 55? You know, oftentimes the mistake we make in this job is that we try to take somebody from the Nepal airport to the summit of Mount Everest in one sales call. And I think that's humbly the wrong strategy. Just get them to base camp one. Let's just try that. And then a creative way to get them there with something that doesn't threaten what they're doing, that doesn't upset their apple cart. Creativity, innovation, not taking no, and looking for an opportunity for a yes at any level. 
just a yes to get them to base camp one. I love this quote by Thomas Edison. It said, there's a way to do it better. Find it. So true story, my daughter, who's older now, but when she was little, when she was a wee young lass, she was at a friend of mine's house playing with their son. They were both about four years old. And in the process of them playing in a living room, there was some serious communication issues uh, going on. So the father incredulously decided to try to resolve this problem with some good advice for his son. And he said, and I quote, when Emily says no, what she really means is yes. There would be no more playdates at this house. And I still marvel at the fact that this father actually thought it was a good idea to teach his four-year-old son, when a woman says no, what she really means is yes, son. And to do that right in front of my wife, just un. Believable, But as horrifying as that messaging was to an impressionable four-year-old boy, it is the exact message that we have to embrace as reps, is that there is no no, and that we will creatively look for the path to that yes in every circumstance, an innovative way to get there. Great quote by Stephen Jobs, difference between a follower and a leader is innovation. So we have to take a leadership role here across the board. If there's an instrument somebody doesn't like, improve it, change it, make another one. If they don't like the technique, what can you do to change the technique so it works and flows for them? The staff doesn't like you. Innovate yourself. Take a leadership role over your behavior. Surgeon doesn't like your company. How can you reinvent that? How can you change the dial in that person's mind uh, and take a leadership role and don't just look at the leaf sitting before you and say, what do I do? What do I do? And if you can't get around it, find your guide aunt to help you get around it. But there is no option. Uh, No is not an option. And standing in front of that leaf and staring at it and just being stuck is not an option. So that takes us to our interview today. Dr. Kern Singh, orthopedic spine surgeon up at Rush University. This gentleman is just amazing. I was inspired coming out of my talk with him just on the innovation stance. I don't believe he sees a no. And there's a way around anything. And he's such a creative force in the spine world. And I thought maybe the audience needs a break from hip and knee replacement. Let's go to the spine. And I am so happy to welcome to the show, Dr. Kern Singh. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm excited. Dr. Singh, I took a perfunctory glance at your CV and I'm absolutely blown away at your body of work in spine. I, I can't wait to ask you about O lifts, T lifts, face lifts. <laughs> Uh, bad joke there. BMAC, uh, your editorial work, and, and much more. But before we get there, tell me about your path in medicine. How did you uh, get to your current position as co-director of the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute at Rush Presbyterian? Well, I think it all starts with my father, who was probably uh, the the largest or the greatest role model in my life. So my father was or is a now is a retired nuclear engineer. He spent most of his life kind of um, uh, 
in the academic world. And he um, was fortunate to get his dream job later on in life. And uh, I think his pursuit of, I guess, innovation inspired me. And so in high school, for some reason or another, I knew I wanted to do medicine. And I ended up going into a six-year undergrad med school program. So it was very accelerated. And um, so juggling high school and skipped a couple of years in high school, and a couple of years in college, I knew I wanted to do medicine, but for some reason I wanted to always do orthopedics. And that's probably because I never really liked biology. I never really liked just rote memorization. I like thinking about things. I like thinking about why we do things. And so orthopedics is very physics and biomechanics based. And that's kind of with my background. And when I got to medical school, day one of medical school, I met the second most influential person in my career. Uh, his name was Alex Vaccaro, a well-known spine surgeon. And I did research. I was one of the first research students with him. He was a young attending, I think maybe one or two years into practice. And uh, I just knew I wanted to do spine. So that was when I started medical school. And I was very precocious in medical school. I think I was 18 or 19 when I started medical school. And uh, I ended up just liking spine because it was such a wide open field. It had not been really developed. There was a lack of innovation. It was kind of, hate to say it, but it was barbaric. And I think all those things led me to believe that there was opportunity to innovate. And that's what excited me. It's amazing to see the explosion in technology in that field right now. I mean, when I first started, there was Danik. Uh, there was just a handful of companies with a, a, a somewhat of a limited product offering. And now there's just a million companies with uh, all kinds of uh, really cool and innovative niche products. And I, I bet it's been fun to be part of that journey, hasn't it? Well, it's been amazing. So I was a second-year resident in orthopedics at uh, Rush and – I watched one of my attendings put in a thoracic pedicle screw, and that was 2001, and that was very unique. And 20 years later, everyone puts in thoracic pedicle screws. And when I was in my fellowship in 2004, I watched one of the first T-lifts being done, and now a T-lift is very standard. So, I mean, things have dramatically changed over the last 10 to 15 years. It's been, it's been astonishing the pace at which we've advanced in spine. Tell me about your practice right now. What are you, uh, what are you doing the most of? You still having to take orthopedic call and do the occasional uh, troke nail, or are you just doing all spine now? And, and what, are you, what are you doing the most of? Yeah, so my practice now is completely different than my practice when I started. So I'm now, this is my 15th year in practice. It's completely different. Everything I do now is what I self-taught. I didn't learn any of this in residency or fellowship, but my practice is 90% all outpatient. So I do spine only. I don't take any general orthopedic call. I don't do any general orthopedic, all spine, uh, all spine, all, all minimally invasive, all outpatient. Uh, everything is done in the, in the surgery center. That's cervical disc replacements, lumbar fusions, micro discs, cervical laminoplasty, you name it, and uh, uh, we do it or I do it in the outpatient arena. Only about 10% of my practice really is left to the hospital. Those are usually patients who are too sick or have some other medical issues that make it a little bit challenging to do outpatient. 
Well, that's kind of groundbreaking stuff you're doing there because I don't normally associate an ASC with spine surgery. Tell me about some of the unique challenges of of bringing that uh, to an outpatient setting. Yeah, so when we first started doing this, or when I first started doing this now, it has been eight years ago. Uh, the biggest challenge was that there were no outpatient spine codes. So even if I wanted to do surgery, and even if I went to the insurer, and I told them they'd be saving a significant amount of money, the patient would have a higher satisfaction score. There was no code for it. So the biggest challenge was convincing payers. So we finally did that, or I finally helped negotiate those those payments. The payers were very happy. The patients were very happy. It was not until just actually about two weeks ago that CMS finally stated that there is no such thing as an inpatient-only code. So now everything can theoretically be done outpatient. But eight years ago, the struggle was just getting people to believe that you could do these procedures safely in an outpatient environment. So you brought up uh, disc replacements. I I talked to a spine rep about that this morning. Uh, Tell me where we are in cervical disc. Uh, Has it lived up to the promise uh, early on about not leading to um, uh, adjacent disc disease? Or where where are we with that? Yeah, so I was a a skeptic. I wrote several papers early on about cervical disc replacements. I felt that some of the original studies were biased from people, from surgeons who were either consultants or investors in disc replacements. So I was a little bit late to adopt the technology, but I would say now over the last five years, unless a patient has uh, kyphosis or a bad sagittal alignment or bad alignment, or if they have a trauma, otherwise I am doing a disc replacement. So we can't say that the adjacent level disc is protected more, but what we can say is they get significant motion. And they are no worse than a cervical fusion. And theoretically, they have benefits of protecting the adjacent level. So for me, everyone is a disc replacement candidate until proven otherwise. The technology has significantly advanced. Now it's very easy to do. In fact, uh, I'm sitting in my office about to see patients. And we just did three cervical disc replacements in the morning in the surgery center next door. And it's not even, it's just turned noon. So you know, the, the procedure has become so safe. The technology has made it so reproducible for the surgeon. It's really hard to argue against a doing a disc replacement unless you are just a naysayer that doesn't want to adapt. But I think it's phenomenal technology. One of the things that's kind of a cool and trendy and exciting thing in joint reconstruction is robotics. And I walked by a room last week and a spine case was going on and they had a robot in there as well. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that technology. It's a great question. Actually, I'm going to break it down into two parts. And the first part, I'm going to talk about joint replacement surgery. So when I get invited to give guest lectures or grand rounds at different institutions, one of the lectures that I give uh, and that I just recently gave in um, in New York City is a lecture on how everything I learned about spine surgery, I learned from my arthroplasty partners. And the talk is about standardizing spine surgery, which is my whole goal, and making it like joint replacement surgery. And, and the, the analogy I give is you could walk into a total hip or total knee in Boston, in L.A., in New Delhi, in Singapore, and 95% of the procedure will be done exactly the same way. You can't say the same is true for spine surgery, and I think that's the problem. There's so much variation, let alone from one city to the next, just one operating room to the next, there's so much variation. And that used to be kind of 
the belief was, well, every patient is different. And actually, I don't really believe that. 90% of what we do in spine surgery is reproducible and should be standardized like joint surgery. So going to the second part of your, your question, which is the robot, if you look at how the robot is being utilized in arthroplasty, it's for standardization of cuts. So, you know, they talk about that measure, measure in millimeters, but cut in inches, kind of that's the orthopedic mantra. You're really accurate on how you preoperatively do something, but the reality is not reproducible in the operating room. And the, and the robot helps get you there. In spine surgery, the robot is still left just to place pedicle screws, which we become very good at. My challenge and disbelief, or I guess uh, kind of like reservation with the robot is, it costs a million dollars. And spine surgery is moving outpatient into surgery centers. You can't afford a million-dollar robot in a surgery center. So unless someone can come up with disruptive technology that facilitates outpatient procedures in spine, I just think it has a niche market, which is what it kind of is developing into right now in spine. Speaking of uh, joint reconstruction, uh, one technology that we've used uh, to great success over the years has been PSI guides, uh, where you just put a a preformed plastic guide with all your, your cuts dialed into it onto the femur and and away you go, and it takes away uh, some of the intraoperative planning aspect and the trajectories and, and such. Uh, is, does that technology exist in spine? Absolutely, and um, many surgeons utilize it cost-effectively for placement of C1, C2, upper cervical screws. You're right. It's, it's, it's kind of cheap, very cost-effective, highly effective uh, navigation. And it's really used in complex spine cases. It's used for tumor resections and tumor cuts in the spine. But it is definitely a cha- it is definitely a technology that is still underutilized. I think a lot of surgeons are not aware that three um, D printing, three D modeling, and these templates can be done very quickly and very uh, and very cost effectively. So I've heard of a T lift. I've heard of an A lift. I've heard of a P lift. Uh, the other day, I heard a word I've never heard, and that was an O-lift. Can you, can you walk me through what that is? Yeah, so uh, I'm a big believer in O-lift, and the other one would be X-lift or D-lift, the lateral. So these are all incisions that are retroperitoneal. So um, I think people are very familiar with coming in the front, an A-lift, which is an anterior lumbar interbody fusion, an O-lift and an X-lift and a D-lift are variations of that. So as opposed to making it directly in the front of your belly or your abdomen, you make it off to the side. So an OLIF has a really huge advantage in that it's a small incision about the size of your fingertip that you make on the side. And you can actually literally palpate your way down to the spine and you can put a retractor in between your psoas muscle and then your aorta. And there's a large working space for your disc uh, to get access to the disc. And so you can get down to the disc space, in particular, in particular like L2, 3, L3, 4, and L4, 5, atraumatically. So as opposed to opening up the abdomen, getting an ileus, patients are constipated and nauseated in the hospital. You can do it now through a small incision. And that's where that OLIF stands for, which is oblique lumbar interbody fusion. Interesting stuff. Tell me about biologics. I, I have never seen more flavors of biologics like I have <laughs> like I have in spine. It's just amazing. Is it dealer's choice? I mean, are they all pretty much the same stuff or is there 
some technologies uh, that are uh, that rise to the surface above the other ones. And I and I want to ask you about BMAC. What is your thoughts on uh, tapping some marrow and adding it to these to these constructs? So what's the old adage? If you have more options, you have no answer. So I think, you know, so I think that's the, the truth with spine biologics. <laughs> if you have all these choices because there's no real good data to support one over the other. I'm probably a new school surgeon doing old school things. And you mentioned BMAC. I really believe in iliac crest bone graft. It's cost effective. It got a bad reputation, unfairly so, because of these biological companies um, touting their own products. I use a small fingertip incision to access the iliac crest, and I actually physically scoop out that bone marrow and that iliac crest bone graft, and I use it for fusions routinely in the outpatient environment. We did a paper uh, that was published asking patients who had undergone fusions with me which side I took their iliac crest from. And because I'm a right-handed surgeon, I take it from the left side of the patient every single time. So the answer is the left. But 80% of patients could not definitively identify which side I took it from. So to answer your question, iliac crest bone marrow works the best. It's cheap. It's free. And if done correctly, minimally invasively, patients don't feel it. And I think uh, it was the past. I think it's actually the future, particularly as we get to these bundle payments and the surgeons are held to a higher standard as far as cost effectiveness effectiveness and delivery of spine care. SI joint fusion. I've seen uh, the trays for that in central sterile once in a while uh, with some orthopedic spine surgeons. And I'm just curious, is that part of your practice? And what do you think of that procedure? I think it it's a procedure. I think it's a pathology, SI joint pain, that is probably under-recognized. And it probably exists. My challenge has always been that we are not very good diagnostically figuring out if the pain generator is truly the SI joint. And what I really see right now is people with diffuse back or hip or buttock pain getting a lot of SI fusions that are probably not truly indicated. So the technology is phenomenal, but it's the diagnostic that's kind of lacking. So I mean, we don't have an MRI or some kind of study that says, oh, yeah, it's the SI joint. And with that, then, I think a lot of people get SI fusions that were never really good candidates. And I think it's being overdone right now. I want to ask you a quick question about your editing with the journals. And you've got these editorial positions, editor-in-chief, uh, orthopedics today, vertebral columns, the Journal of Contemporary Spine Surgery. Tell me about your uh, your interest in working in that field. Yeah, I mean, I like editing. I like writing. I like, and the reason it just keeps me, I don't know, keeps me young, keeps me fresh, keeps me understanding what's being innovated out there by other surgeons. It gives me an unfair advantage. I get to see what's being what's being done on the cutting edge elsewhere. Uh, I think for me, it's just always an enlightening experience to see what other people are doing before it hits the press. So that's why I enjoy editing and, and reviewing for journals or being an editor for journals. I think it just gives me uh, complete access to what other surgeons are doing in the United States and internationally as well. Put your pontification hat on just for a second. Where do you see the next frontier 
for spine surgery. Do you think it's you're already there and and it's bringing the rest of the market that direction towards the outpatient, or is it a technology? Is it a what do you think? Yeah, so I think there's probably two next fronts in or three next fronts maybe in spine. Uh, that's um, diagnostic technology. That means we get something better than an MRI, something that shows us truly kind of pain or where pain could be generating from as opposed to just an image. So I think we need to make improvements on the, the imaging side. The second is um, the facilitation of the surgeon completing the procedure. And that means uh, there's potential for augmented reality uh, or, or virtual reality. Augmented reality means that you take the, the real world and then you overlay something on it like a CT scan or MRI. And there's certain technologies that they're that are on the market, but still a little bit behind and not game ready. And I think that's going to change the next three to five years. And then I think there's things which I'm personally working on, which is something called quantitative imaging. That is taking a technology like an ultrasound and then colorizing it like Mario Kart or a video game. So as opposed to a surgeon looking at a screen saying, is that the nerve in the gray area or not? kind of highlighting that area in real time or coloring it in with the yellow circle and an artery with the red circle. So image enhancement, I think all of those things are being worked on at a rapid pace, but um, some of them are still a couple of years away. But I think that that will make surgeons more effective and I think they'll deliver the care faster and better. The challenge will be, as you know, everything in orthopedics and medicine, the reimbursement gets cut every year. And the, the profitability is not really there. So if we're going to add a cost to a procedure, it has to be justifiable. Otherwise, it makes no sense to make a procedure that can be done well already more expensive because no one's going to pay for it, neither the patient nor the payer, and nor is the hospital going to take a loss on it. Tell me about your patents. Uh, I'm kind of an erstwhile inventor, and I, I saw you've got some patents hanging out there. Any particular one that you're the most excited about that was the most fun putting together? Yeah, the, I think it's it's a company I have. They started from the ground up. Uh, our, our current CEO is the former CEO of Nuvasiv, Alex Lukianoff, uh, the guy who founded and created Nuvasiv. He is the current CEO of the company. Uh, the patent we have is on ultrasound technology and going across the psoas muscle. So there's a procedure that we talked about before. That's that O-lift or X-lift going across or around the psoas muscle. So now imagine making a small incision the size of your fingertip, putting a probe down, putting the probe on the psoas muscle. You push one button and in one second on the screen for the surgeon, it shows all the arteries and all the nerves in the psoas muscle around it. And in one second, the surgeon who may never have done a surgery before lateral can now do this surgery by just picking the safest path and trajectory. And the, this algorithm that we've created will show them that path. And so it levels the playing field. So O-lift, X-lift, all these things are very complex surgeries. And what this does is it makes it accessible to the to the novice or to the to the beginning surgeon who is just going down that pathway. The company name is TDI Tissue Differentiation. Um, it is we just we got uh, we just received uh, two blocking patents, and uh, about three months ago we received FDA approval for our 510K, 
And we've been doing now, I think, about 15 surgeries in the lateral position on, on patients. And uh, it's been blowing up. The, the reps in the room, the surgeons who have been utilizing it have been loving the technology. And, and we hope that uh, it will be uh, close to commercialization soon enough. Well, if you have a position open up uh, where you need a vice president in charge of podcasting, I- I'm your guy. <laughs> that, that's, uh... I like. Hey, there's you always need publicity, so I, I think that's always a good thing. Well, that's that's very exciting stuff. So while we're doing publicity, I, I need to give you a shameless plug. Tell me how people can find out about what you're doing in the outpatient side. You know, what is there a website out there? How do they uh, How do they follow you? Yeah, so. Um... I'm I'm very active on social media now over the last three to four months. Um, some friends, my wife convinced me to to get on social media to show people what we're doing. And, and it's been really good and engaging. So I tell patients and people, go to my website, www.outpatient-spine-surgeon.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram, which is just Kern Singh, K-E-R-N-S-I-N-G-H-M-D. Or LinkedIn. Otherwise, I show all my videos. I try to update it every week. I do a interesting, challenging case every week, and people chime in from all disciplines all over the world on LinkedIn and Instagram about what they would do in this situation. It's very interesting. Endoscopic spine surgery. I'd never really heard that phrase until I, I researched you and, and your practice. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, so um, it's actually. It's a technology that I did or utilized 10 years ago, but it wasn't really good enough for, for prime time at that time. But imagine just putting a knee scope down in your back. And so now we put a camera into the nerve root foramen where the nerve root exists, and we look at the nerve root in the disc. So through a pinhole or an incision the size of your pen tip or the pencil tip, you can get into the to the disc space. So... Um, for people who have disc herniations, if they have nerve root compression, the foramen, it works amazingly well. And uh, it's kind of cool technology. You look at it, it looks like you're doing an ACL reconstruction or a knee scope. And patients, in fact, the surgeries that I do on these patients, they're actually awake uh, while the procedure is being done. And then once you remove the disc herniation and to see how much you need to remove or if you removed enough, you ask the patient to move their leg while you're doing the procedure, and if their leg pain is gone, well, your procedure is done. So it's very interactive. And we do it in the surgery center. It's amazing the complexity of, of what you guys are doing and what spine reps are having to manage these days. So I always, I think, I don't know if you saw, but I gave a huge shout out to the nurses, techs, and the spine reps that were in my room. Uh, we had done a bunch of cases, and actually, I just took a picture every day. I take a picture at the end um, of all the the team members. Just the uh, spine rep that knows their instrumentation, has the trays ready, knows what's how to line it up. It's invaluable. We just did this morning uh, nine cases in the um, in the surgery center before I got here today to talk to you and then do clinic. And my rep or reps were invaluable. They made sure the trays were ready. They made sure that the scrub tech knew exactly what instruments I needed. That's the only way that you can become highly efficient is if you have a rep that is educated, well-informed, and just knows your practice pattern. So they're invaluable for my practice. 
Dr. Singh, I am so excited about your work in just standardizing the spine uh, procedure. That's just amazing. And I'm so thankful for you bringing these fascinating cases onto LinkedIn and uh, urge all my listeners to, to follow you and see this. You're, you're generating just some valuable, valuable content. Well, thank you for having me. Don't let my, um, don't let my arthroplasty partners hear about me giving them compliments. Their egos are big enough as it is that I, that I say that we want to be like them. I'll edit that out. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, sir. I, I'm just honored Absolutely. honored to have you on the show and uh, keep up the great work. Well, keep uh, keep checking out my posts and let me know what you think and chime in on you know your thoughts on cases and commentary. Uh, it's always much appreciated. One of my favorite parts of the interview was when Dr. Singh referred to the fact that there was no code to do spine surgery in an ASC setting. So they went and argued their case because an innovator doesn't see the word no. They just don't see it. It's all about getting a yes. And oftentimes it's an iterative yes, but it's a yes nonetheless. Now, we talked about this a while back. Uh, Captain Picard told us that sometimes you can do all the right things yet still lose. So we do all these things. It's not an absolute fact that it's going to work, but I ask this question all the time, and I want this question to be in your mind. What's the alternative to keep doing the same thing, to get stuck in front of the leaf and go, well, this is the way it's always going to be? Uh, you cannot accept that. You know, I've said it before that device is life, and a lot of these things that we talk about, you can't accept that in your relationships outside of this business your relationship with your kids, your parents, your significant other. Uh, these things always demand looking at it and how can we make it better? How can we bring innovative change to bring value, new value, to everything going on around us? That is the heart of an innovator and it is a character trait that we all desperately need. So a huge thanks to Dr. Singh for bringing those wonderful examples to us and, and what he's done in his life that we can learn from and, and model that. And thanks to you. Uh, the fact that you're even here listening to this episode tells me that you've already got some of that innovator spirit in you, that you want to get better at this thing, and that's why you're, you're part of this. So this week, let's be appreciative. Let's be creative. Let's be innovative, thus being effective. And most importantly, let's all be Thanks.